Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Crime, a true crime podcast hosted by myself, Lisa Marie Imre. Hello to anyone tuning in for the first time. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for listening in. Each week, I sit down with a cup of coffee and I talk about a true crime story. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, then I highly suggest hitting that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on. That could be Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music. Also, you can get in touch on Facebook or Instagram at Coffee and Crime Podcast with your thoughts or feelings about any episodes, recommendations for future episodes, or just anything true crime related. So this week's case, I have picked this case for, I don't know, some weird reasons. So it's the first of something, which is always an interesting case to cover. It's also funny (laughs) I mean like it's not funny it's there's a murder there's a victim it's tragic but the perpetrator for today makes me laugh because they're dumb right and they're a dumb bad person so that's even funnier to laugh at so that's kind of why I've picked today's case and I just think it's a lot lighter and like I said something you can kind of laugh at So I thought it would be best to do after a really heavy case that we covered last week. So those are my reasonings. Hopefully you can get a laugh out of it too. (laughs) But it also adds a whole new meaning to the Forrest Gump's infamous line. I apologize in advance for this. Life is like a box of chocolates. Never know what you're going to (laughs) get. My Tom Hanks. Yeah, so I hope you enjoy the episode. Um, Let me know what you think at the end as per usual, but let's get into it. Warning, the following episode contains adult language, discussion of alcohol abuse, addictions, stillbirth and murder that listeners may find disturbing. The podcast is intended for listeners 16 years and above. Listener discretion is advised. Cordelia Adelaide Brown was born around 1854 in Kansas City, Missouri to Richard John Brown and Lamina Brown, and she was one of five children. Now, as Cordelia was growing up, it became quite apparent that she was narcissistic. She quite literally thought she was God's gift to earth. She had this confidence that, I'm not going to lie, I think a lot of us want the level of confidence that she had at least sometime in our lives but unfortunately she just had this really nasty attitude paired along with it so anyone who tried to take her down a notch I don't know tell her to keep her ego in check just received a back end of snobbiness and bitchiness from Cordelia essentially Um, I'm not gonna really go on too much about her looks because I'm I'm no picnic myself, but um, Cordelia was described as a short, round, big-nosed, thin-lipped woman who was frumpy. So that was her description. That description is used multiple times throughout this case. It's how everyone seemed to describe her. And I mean, I've seen pictures of her and I agree with the description. It's not fake. (laughs) It's not a false description. So, like I said, confidence is key. If you have the confidence, you can sell anything, which is essentially what Cordelia did. But without sounding too horrible or mean, she just wasn't actually the prettiest woman out there. But yeah, so that's what you need to know about Cordelia. She's very narcissistic. She thinks that it's uh, hot girl all seasons instead of hot girl summer for her. And she liked to flaunt this um beauty and this confidence that she had so that's a little bit about Cordelia and now we'll get into her life in 1872 when Cordelia was only 18 years old she got married to a wealthy grain broker who was 33 and his name was Welcome Botkin now I don't know if that's meant to be pronounced with an accent I don't know his nationality but it's pronounced welcome like what can I say except 
you're welcome. Why? Yes, I, I am welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, I am welcome. You know what I mean? His name is Welcome. It's an interesting name. Uh, but anyway, Welcome Botkin and the now Mrs. Cordelia Botkin, they had a son called Beverly. And then in the 1880s, the little family of Tres, the family of three, they moved to Stockton, California, because Welcome got offered a job as a salesman there. And Stockton, California, is a hefty 25-hour drive from Missouri. So, big move. Now, Welcome, like I said, he was wealthy, he was successful. And to get to that position in life, you need to be like a respectable, honorable gentleman, which indeed he was. But Cordelia just didn't act like the wife of a wealthy, respectable gentleman. You know what I mean? Um, She thought she oozed with sex appeal. She would brag about being a model. Uh, She said that she was photographed over a hundred times, apparently, which is a big deal back in the 1800s because being photographed was very expensive. Um, But Cordelia said that she would always have her photo taken like, paparazzis, please stay away. Um, But when she was being photographed, she would pose in quite sexual and suggestive positions. She wanted to flaunt her busty figure. Now, it's safe to say that people didn't like Cordelia because of her attitude, the way she acted. She was very improper and not like a Victorian era lady. Uh, Cordelia could be found drinking, gambling, hanging out at back alley pubs, with the lads, one of the boys, (laughs) and it just wasn't a good luck for Welcome either. So he wanted to leave this marriage. Um, They couldn't get divorced. Quick note, I don't know how they got together in the first place. I don't know if this was some sort of arranged thing. I don't know if they had actually met and fancied each other, or whether Cordelia was just a Bit of a gold digger. Way over time. That digs on me. I'm in a very cool, very musical mood this morning. Um, sorry to subject you all to that. So yeah, so they couldn't get divorced, so they just separated. Welcome stayed in Stockton, whereas Cordelia and Beverly moved to San Francisco, which is about one and a half hours away. And Welcome would visit at least once a month, once every two months, to pay Cordelia alimony, which is like a financial support for spouses that separate. But don't feel too bad for Welcome because he got his own little slice of San Francisco, if you get what I mean. Welcome started an affair with Cordelia's landlady, and her name was Clara. I don't really want to call it an affair because... They are separated, but because they are technically, legally still married, it is considered an affair. But yeah. So Cordelia, she is living the life that she wants with her alimony. She's drinking, she's gambling, she's out with the boys, with the lads, just having fun and not having a care in the world, really. But then in 1895, at 41 years old, while at Golden Gate Park, Cordelia notices that there's a gentleman nearby who's having trouble with his bicycle. Wow. The two of them made eye contact, and it is as if Cupid himself, with his little cherub wings and his little cherub butt, had shot them both with an arrow because it was love at first sight. And this gentleman was John Preston Dunning. Now, John was 31 years old, so about 9, 10 years younger than Cordelia. He was a correspondent that covered war. He was a highly regarded reporter for the Associated Press. John had just spent some time over in Samoa, which is in our neck of the woods. It's not too far from Aotearoa, New Zealand. And he was covering the naval confrontation between the United States, Great Britain, and Imperial Germany. And it was John's coverage of the confrontation and, you know, the the possibility of war breaking out that everyone in the U.S. was reading pretty much. So it made him very successful. If you're interested, before war or peace could be decided, a typhoon hit somewhere and it sunk the U.S. and the Imperial Germany warships. The warship from Great Britain 
managed to ride it out and then left. So it was a disaster all the way around. It was a huge disaster for the people of Samoa. Um, yeah, it, w- it was awful. But John was now in San Francisco because he had been promoted to superintendent of the Associated Press's Western Division Bureau. And yeah, he is sounding like a right catch. Damn, son, you're doing well for yourself and you're of a good age. Cordelia is loving this. But I'm going to throw a red flag on the play because there's always, there's always something when you think you've met Mr. Perfect. John is in San Francisco with his wife and infant daughter. Cordelia, sorry, but this man is not available for you. But when John saw Cordelia, nothing else mattered. When they met at Golden Cape Park, there was this chemistry and tension and they they had to be together. So they just started hanging out, going for little walks, chatting. They mainly complained about their marriages, you know, to other people. They were complaining about that to each other. So Mary, John's wife, She wasn't adjusting to life in San Francisco. She missed her home and her family that was in Dover, Delaware. Delaware is literally on the other side of America, uh, about 45 hours to drive it straight today. Um, In the 1800s, it would take a much longer time. Trams, carriages, horses, however the hell they got around, it would take a very long time. Geography blows my mind and I don't mean to keep going on about it, but it is crazy. It's crazy. So yeah, John is complaining about Mary because it sounds like she's miserable. She's complaining about it. John's like, I'm trying to set us up with a good life and he's just a bit over it. So then when he met Cordelia, not only was she the most beautiful thing he's ever seen, but there was this like confidence and energy about her that drew him in. So their friendship, which, I mean, their friendship alone was scandalous because they weren't married and they weren't relatives, so they shouldn't really have been hanging out. But the friendship evolved into a sexual relationship and they didn't really keep this very secret. (laughs) Cordelia was showing John all of her local hangouts, introduced him to this very dark side of life and of San Francisco, just this carefree lifestyle that John got very excited about. Mary found out about the affair and this was like her ticket out of San Francisco. Again, they couldn't get divorced because it's not really a thing. There's like a very strict criteria in getting divorced. So she just took her daughter and moved back to Dover, Delaware. So yeah, here's Cordelia and now she's got John and they're just having fun. They're going hard, they're drinking, they're gambling, but then John starts to overdo it. So you know when you maybe, I don't know, start drinking for the first time and you find a drink that you like and you stick with it and you just drink, 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 drink because you're enjoying it and it's exciting. And then next thing you know, you're on the side of the road (laughs) three o'clock in the morning covered in your own vomit and you know you have overdone it (laughs) I mean I hope we've all been there (laughs) this is essentially what John was doing now that he had found this new side of life (laughs) he became addicted to drinking and gambling he got himself in a crazy amount of debt so he needs a plan to fix this so this is John's plan It's foolproof, if you ask me. He decides to take money from the Associated Press, his place of work, gamble it to double, triple, quadruple, make way more of it so that he can pay off the debt, but also put the money back at the Associated Press. I cannot see a single thing going wrong with that. Uh, Like I said, it's foolproof. So John embezzles 4,000 US dollars, which today would be about 116,000 US dollars. He was promptly fired. 
and he never paid back his debt and he never paid work back. So yeah, it didn't work. Weird, right? Who would have seen that coming? (laughs) What? So he now couldn't land another job. He had nowhere to live. And so he ended up moving in with Cordelia. She was like staying long-term at the Victoria Hotel. Um, And they were just living off her alimony money and whatever money she was getting from wherever else. The affair between Cordelia and John lasted about three years. And they just were in love. I don't know what Cordelia thought about the embezzlement or him having to move in because he had lost all of his money. But I do know that Cordelia thought that this guy was the bee's knees and she loved him and wanted to stick by him through everything. Then in 1898, John was offered a job opportunity. This was to go over to Cuba to cover the conflict between Spain and the US. This would eventually become the Spanish-American War. And there was no one more qualified to cover war than John. So when he was given this uh, second chance, so to speak, John took a long, hard look at himself in the mirror. He thought about his life, his current situation, and he realized just how much he missed Mary, his wife, he missed his daughter and the stability of the life he had before Cordelia. Basically, he didn't realize what he had until it was gone. Now, I'm not saying that Cordelia was a bad girlfriend or that they had a bad relationship, even if it did come from an affair, but John just associated all the bad things that were happening to him with Cordelia. So, John told Cordelia he was going to go to Cuba for this job and she was heartbroken. She was really upset. She thought it was too dangerous to go and she just begged him to stay. But then just to kick her while she was down, John also told her that he wasn't going to come back to San Francisco, but instead he was going to go over to Dover, Delaware and win Mary back. He had started corresponding with Mary already just apologizing, admitting his mistakes, and saying how he wanted to make things right. So while John was in Cuba, Cordelia was scorned. Oh, she was mad. And she thought, well, if I can't have John, then nobody can. So she started to send letters to Mary with all the details of the affair, of the embezzlement, just just airing John's dirty laundry to Mary. Uh, Cordelia signed these letters off by, quote, a friend, end quote, um, you know, anonymous letters. She just wanted to push Mary over the edge so that she would reject John before he even got back in the country and he would have no choice but to go back to San Francisco. But you could so tell that this was Cordelia writing these letters because she was saying that the woman that John was with was the most beautiful woman and that no one could ever compare to her and she was just stunning and yeah like Cordelia your ego is showing girl tone it down now Mary kept these letters she put them away in a drawer it's unknown whether she was going to confront John about it or just keep them I don't know out of sight out of mind but yeah she had them in a drawer Then August 9th, 1898, a special gift was delivered to the house where Mary was living. So this was Mary's parents' house and she was living there with her daughter. I'm just going to say real quick, the daughter's name is also Mary, which is why I just keep saying Mary and her daughter because it just is going to get confusing. Um, But now you know. Okay. Okay. So this Special gift was a brown paper package with a pink satin bow wrapped around it. And inside was a selection of some handmade fancy schmancy chocolates, some chocolate bonbons. And there was also a lacy handkerchief that was quite expensive and a note that read, quote, with love to yourself and baby, Mrs. C, end quote. Now, Mrs. C was thought to have been Mrs. Corbelly, who was like the only friend that Mary made back in San Francisco. So she just thought this was a really lovely gift from a really lovely person. Now, Mary put the chocolates away to have after dinner that night. And then Mary's older sister, Harriet, and Harriet's daughter came over for dinner to have, you know, with the whole family. 
the whole fam. And they had trout and corn fritters. <laughs> yum, yum, yum. And after dinner, they were just all sitting outside on the porch, enjoying the rest of the really hot day. Uh, two kids from next door came over to play with um, Mary's daughter and her niece. And they were just all enjoying the evening. And Mary thought that this was a good time to get the chocolates out. Uh, Mary was known to be, quote, passionately fond of candy, end quote. So when she got the box of chocolates, uh, before she headed out, she snuck a couple of pieces to herself. Mm -mm -mm. <laughs> and I can relate to this. <laughs> I think that that is definitely something I would do. She knew she had to, you know, be polite and hand them out, but she wanted a few, a few pieces to herself. So when she got out of the house, she let the kids have one piece each. Uh, Mary's parents passed on the offer. They said that they didn't want any. And then Harriet and Mary both tuck into a few more pieces. Um, a couple of hours or so go by and then everyone's complaining of bad stomach aches, um, cramps. And then next minute, everyone's throwing up. Everyone is puking. Uh, they're all super sick. And these were all the people that had a piece of chocolate. So Mary's dad, his name is John Pennington. And I know that the husband's called John Dunning and it's going to get confusing. So Mary's dad, I will call Papa John, <laughs> Papa. And then John Dunnigan, I will call husband John. <laughs> so hopefully that will keep things clear. So Papa John, he calls for a doctor because it's so weird that everyone is sick and he has now got a house that smells of vomit. So it's lovely, lovely. The doctor comes over, he looks at everyone's symptoms and he puts it down to cholera morbus, which is food poisoning due to lack of refrigeration. Now, because there's no AC back in those days, there's no range hoods, there's no fans or cooling systems in the house. Whenever there's food cooked on the stove, the whole house gets hot. And it was also a hot day. So it was just a sticky mess really um they had trout for dinner so the doctor believed that the trout caused the food poisoning so now there's a few holes in this story a few things that just didn't add up because papa john and his wife they had the dinner and didn't get sick and then the neighboring kids they didn't have dinner and they were sick so that's just not right uh, as the night goes on, the kids, they all start feeling better, but not Mary or Harriet. They just seem to get worse and worse and worse. So every symptom that you possibly could think of, fever, sweats, shaking, episodes of delirium and like hallucinations, uh, they're still throwing up, they have bloody diarrhea, like every symptom you could think of, the girls had it. So Papa John, he calls for another doctor and he says, don't tell me it's food poisoning by trout because I know it's not. The doctor has a look over the woman and indeed he says, this isn't food poisoning, just normal poisoning. But because medicine is not what it, it's not, oh, how do I say this? Medicine is much better now than it was back in the 1890s. So unfortunately, there was nothing this doctor could do. He told them what was going on and said, like, sorry, good luck, bye-bye. So after two days of these symptoms, Mary and Harriet both died. It was a slow, awful, painful death. And that's heartbreaking. It hits home. They were both mamas. That's really sad. So Papa John, he sends an urgent telegram to husband John and he gets to Delaware as quickly as he can. It takes him about 10 days or so. And you might be thinking, you might not, but you might be, Papa John, this man did your daughter and your granddaughter dirty. Why? Why are you getting him involved? Well, Papa John had no idea about the affair, about the life that John was living in San Francisco or the bad decisions he had made. Um, yeah, he, he like didn't know anything. I don't know what Mary told him when he, she moved back to Delaware with her daughter, but yeah, he didn't know because husband John, he started going through 
you know, Mary's things in her room. And this is when he found the letters in a drawer. He read them and almost instantly he recognized the handwriting and he knew who they were from. So he broke down and ended up telling Papa John everything. And then he showed the letters and told him that he believes that Cordelia had something to do with this. So then Papa John gives husband John, sorry, again, trying to keep it clear. Papa John gives husband John the note that came with the chocolates and said, do they match? And yep, perfect match. And this just like sealed the deal for husband John that Cordelia had murdered his wife. So Papa John, he sends the chocolates out to a chemist to be analyzed. Um, Papa John is smart cookie. He knows something's up and he wants to get to the bottom of this. He now has two dead daughters and he, he needs some answers, right? So the chemist reported back that indeed there were traces of arsenic within the chocolates. Now arsenic we know is a very extremely deadly poison. It is a heavy metal element that's commonly used in car batteries and ammunition. It's also found in pesticides. Another little interesting fact about arsenic, it could also be used in makeup. If you mixed arsenic with vinegar and chalk, it serves as a skin lightener. So it was very common and very easily purchased back in the 1800s, I suppose. So the Dover police are now involved for the suspected double homicide of Mary and Harriet, uh, with the chemist report coming back positive for arsenic, and then with husband John's allegation against Cordelia. <clears throat> it's a case. There's been a murder. Time to solve it. So with husband John's testimony, uh, Dover police reach out to San Francisco police to help with the investigation. I mean, being 45 hours away does make things a little bit difficult, but they send over a detective to San Francisco to hand deliver the evidence to help with the investigation, whatnot. And the evidence was some leftover chocolate, wrapping paper and a bow, the handkerchief, the note and the anonymous letters. And it was the San Francisco police chief who oversaw this investigation. This was Isaiah W. Lees. Now, quick fun fact about him. In 1854, it was Isaiah Lees who pushed to make mugshots a regular thing. Mugshots were being taken of criminals already, but he wanted every criminal to have their mugshot taken because it would implement an effective system to identify them quickly if they reoffend, you know what I mean? So he actually has made a huge impact on policing as we know it today. So I have faith in this guy. So the first stop in the investigation was to find out where the chocolates came from. And this was easy because the wrapping paper and the pink satin bow were well known. They came from George Haas Confectionery, which is a sweet shop franchise that had four different locations in San Francisco. So the police, they go out to the different locations. They're having a chat with all members of staff. And this is when they meet Miss Henny. And Miss Henny remembers selling chocolate to someone who matched Cordelia's description because the customer wanted a full-sized box of chocolate that was only half full. She also asked for the company name and logo to not be on the box. So it's a bit weird. Like, why? <laughs> why would you only want half a box full if you're going to buy a full size? And Miss Henny asked this woman and the lady replied that she wanted to put her own homemade chocolates in there as well. And again, that's weird. Like, save your money. Just send your own chocolates by themselves. So it's a weird story, uh, but the police are happy with that because the customer matches Cordelia's description. And this is tick box number one. So then they have a look at the handkerchief, which still had its price tag on, which is a mistake and a dumb move from the perpetrator. And it showed that the handkerchief was purchased at the City of Paris department store. So that's the next stop. Police are down there, they're interviewing staff, and they meet Mrs. Harris, who remembers selling a handkerchief to a woman that matched Cordelia's description. And the way she remembers this is because she said to the customer when they came in, uh, hey, you look like my dead mum. <laughs> and she pulled out a photo 
of her dead mother and was like, hey, it looks like you. I can only imagine Cordelia's face. She was probably livid because she thought she was so hot. Um, police also saw the photo of Mrs. Harris's dead mother and agreed that it looked exactly like Cordelia. But anyway, Mrs. Harris sold the handkerchief to this woman and police are happy with it. That's tick box number two. So the next stop was figuring out what post office the chocolates were sent from. And luckily there was only one post office that was in the same vicinity as the confectionery store and the department store. Awesome. Thank goodness for that. Police are down there, again, interviewing staff, and this is when they meet a male attendant who remembers a woman matching Cordelia's description who was mailing a brown paper package wrapped in a pink satin bow. And the way he remembers this woman was because the package was addressed to Mrs. John Dunning, because that's how wives were addressed. And the male attendant's name was John Dunnigan. So he's like, hey, that sounds like my name. So that's how he remembered that. Boom, tick box number three. So now it was figuring out where the arsenic came from. And this was going to be a little harder. Like I said earlier, arsenic was a lot easier to come by back then and lots of places sold it. So they're not really hopeful on this, but it's essentially the murder weapon so they're really hot they really want to find where it came from and luckily they met mr gray who worked at an owl drugstore and he remembers selling arsenic to a woman who matched cordelia's description because she wanted two ounces of arsenic to bleach a straw hat and mr gray had told her that there are much easier and better ways of doing that but this woman insisted there you have it that's tick box number four The police were able to obtain a search warrant for Cordelia's room at the Victoria Hotel. And when they got there, she wasn't at home. That's great. That's a relief for the police. They don't have to deal with that just yet. But in the room, they found some leftover satin and wrapping paper that matched the ones from the George Haas confectionery. They also found the seal of the company, the confectionery company that had been removed. She has made this so easy for the police. She has made a scene at every stop of the way. And then she just left all this evidence in her. Like, she's dumb. And that's why I laugh at her having this awful attitude, thinking that she's like the most beautiful woman on the planet because she's just dumb. But to solidify the case against Cordelia, to just cover all bases, the police looked more at the letters that were sent to Mary. Um, They got a handwriting expert to come in to look at the anonymous letters, the note that was with the chocolates, and some love letters that John, husband John, had received from Cordelia. And yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, the expert confirmed that all three were written by the same person. Boom! Tick box number six. Great police work there. Isaiah Lees, you're a legend, mate. We love that. We love that. So this is just an open and shut case, right? Like there's no way it could not have been Cordelia. So Lees, he goes to obtain an arrest warrant. And to do that, he needs to present all the findings of the police through the investigation to a jury. And then the jury decide whether it is enough to arrest someone. And he's actually a little bit worried. He is a bit nervous because there is a loophole, a pretty big loophole in his case. What? How could that be? You have just ticked off all these boxes. (laughs) Wow. The loophole is that there was never an autopsy conducted on Mary or Harriet before they were buried. And there wasn't an autopsy done because the doctor at the morgue said that any traces of arsenic would be long gone because of how much the women were vomiting and diarrheaing, <laughs> coming out both ends. Um, he just said there would be no traces left, so there's no point. Again, knowledge that they had back then isn't what we have now. We know that arsenic can be traced in your bones, your fingernails, and your hair, but they didn't know that. The doctor was just confident that this is what killed them. 
The grand jury, they did overlook this loophole. They thought that the police had done enough and Cordelia was indicted for two counts of first-degree murder. She was found at her sister's house in Haldsburg, California, which is about one and a half hours north of San Francisco. And the police were hoping that Cordelia would confess to the murders when she was arrested and then they wouldn't have to go through a trial or there wouldn't be so much paperwork or that admin stuff. But no... Cordelia didn't confess. She pleaded not guilty. And so police were like, all right, pack your stuff. You're going to jail. (laughs) So (laughs) Cordelia, oh, this is such a power move. (laughs) She goes upstairs to pack her things and she knows she's going to be going away for a long time. So she packs her life, everything she owns into this trunk. And this trunk takes two police officers to carry it, to put it back, you know, in the back of the police wagon whatever they're traveling in so she's just out there walking like peasants carry my things <laughs> like she's just there like it's just this woman's confidence is fire she's awful she's an evil person but it's just fire <laughs> and then it's funny because she's so confident but she's so dumb and she literally couldn't get away with this because she left so much evidence oh it's just funny It's just funny. So Cordelia Botkin was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. This was the first murder by mail and the first American prosecution for a crime that happened in two different jurisdictions. So the California jurisdiction, they wanted to oversee the proceedings because the murder weapons, you know, death by chocolate, and the crime was planned in California – But Delaware wanted to oversee the proceedings because that's where the murder took place. And there was a bit of a legal battle between the two states about who would take the case. In the end, California won because you can't extradite a person to a place they haven't been before. So she couldn't be tried over in Delaware because she hadn't been there. So that's why her trial happened in the state of California. So Cordelia's trial began on December 6th, 1898, and it was messy. This was a media frenzy, the, a public frenzy, because everyone was trying to get into the courthouse to get a glimpse of the woman who killed over a man and the man whose wife was killed by his mistress. Like, this is movie plot stuff, right? This doesn't happen in everyday 1890s Victorian era San Francisco. So people wanted the gossip firsthand and those that couldn't had to rely on newspapers. So newspaper sales were off the charts. Journalists, this was the best time to be a journalist and make your newspaper more successful than your competitors. So the ones that could report on the juiciest details were the ones that sold the most. Cordelia's private life was out there in the open for everyone to see and sex sells. Oh my goodness. Everything that came out about her uh, photographs in suggestive positions, they were published in the newspapers. Uh, They focused on her sexuality, her ego, her narcissistic attitude, how she thought she was super hot and like I said earlier, God's gift to earth. But a lot of the feedback was that it made people laugh. They thought this was a like a comedic circus that was going on because she was described as frumpy. She looked a lot older than what she was. And yeah, I, oh yeah, I'm not going to go on because I don't want to be the judgy bitch, but I agree. She just wasn't the prettiest and she had an evil attitude and she was an evil person so that makes you ugly inside and outside there we go that's all I'm gonna say so during the trial Cordelia was dressed all in black she had a lace handkerchief it was a very fancy dress that she was wearing as if it was for like the queen's funeral or something she just made a show everywhere she went and the media described her as a quote smug self-satisfied cunning little woman end quote So the trial, uh, the prosecution delivered the evidence of all the items that were found, uh, all the different shop clerks and staff members they spoke to. They all gave their witness statements about the interactions with Cordelia, the evidence that she left in her hotel room, the handwriting expert, just, it was just a solid case. 
that you couldn't not <laughs> agree that it was Cordelia at this point. So when it was John's turn to testify, well, everyone's eyes were front and center because here is the man whose wife was killed by the mistress. And everyone was just expecting him to be the most handsome male dripping with sex appeal. Like they would, they couldn't wait to have a look at him. People were so disappointed. <laughs> John was described as whiny, narrow shoulders, thinning hair, also looked older than he looked. And the people just didn't get it after this. Like, who's killing people over mediocre looking people? <laughs> oh my goodness. But yeah, the media just focused on looks because how could you not with a case like this? <sighs> Anyway, anyway, so the defense's angle was they wanted to make John look like a sleazy scumbag. They found out that he was also sleeping with other women while he was in this relationship with Cordelia. So they wanted the defense, sorry, they wanted to put doubt in the mind of the jury that it wasn't Cordelia. It must have been one of his other mistresses. So they were banging on it, John, like, who else did you sleep with? Who else? John said he only slept with three other women, but he refused to give any names. He didn't want to drag an innocent woman into this because he knew that Cordelia did this. I kind of hand it to John for doing that. He didn't get anyone else involved. I don't understand how this worked, but the defense held John in jail for three nights to get him to crack. I can only speculate that the charge would have been maybe as a co-conspirator to the murder I don't know I don't understand but he was held in jail for three nights but he still refused to give any names so good for you John so the defense had to drop this because it wasn't getting them anywhere now when it was Cordelia's turn to take the stand she was heavily coached she was told to tone her ego down speak nicely appeal to the jury because it's so much harder to convict someone you like um, during the, oh, during her questioning and whatnot, she did admit to purchasing the arsenic, which nobody expected. But again, she ran with the cleaning the straw hat story. She bought the straw hat in to show, look, I've bleached it. She also said she bought arsenic powder, um, whereas the arsenic in the chocolates was crystallized. So it couldn't have been her. Cordelia said she also had alibis for the days that the chocolates were purchased and the day that the handkerchief was purchased. And that was, she was at a doctor's appointment on one of the days. And then the other one, she was confined to her hotel room because she was sick, but nobody came forward to support her alibis. No doctor's records, no witnesses, nilch, nada, zip. So after three weeks, the trial came to a close. And on December 30th, 1898, Cordelia Adelaide Brown-Botkin was charged with two counts of first-degree murder and was found guilty. She was sentenced to life in prison. And just a quick note, this gave Welcome Botkin, you know, the husband, <laughs> he now met the criteria to file for a divorce because Cordelia was a convicted felon convicted criminal so he could now file for divorce and get on with his life not having to give her any more money he is free as a bird I wonder if he was still with Clara at this point the landlady his little slice of San Francisco oh good for you welcome good for you so could we <laughs> butchered that <laughs> sorry so Cordelia she started serving her sentence at San Francisco jail and now get this all right within the first few months she's making some pretty good friendships in there with the prison guards she is sleeping around in exchange for a luxurious prison life she was able to get a comfy mattress a comfy pillow and she was also able to leave prison day trips while repaying in sexual favors with all these prison guards so one day she's out shopping and it was the judge that sentenced her to life in prison he saw her out and about and was like what <laughs> excuse me 
you should be in jail. So he never said anything to her. He didn't want her to run away. So this judge started investigating. And this is when he found out about the uh, sexual misconduct that was going on in the prison. But nobody would admit to sleeping with Cordelia. Nobody admitted to anything. Of course, why would they? (laughs) They would lose their jobs. But I don't get it. And when this news came out, nobody could understand it. Like, I don't mean to sound vulgar, but this Cordelia must have had beer in her tits instead of milk because everyone wanted to sleep with her. And she could get it wherever she wants. She, like I said, right at the start, if you are confident, you can sell anything. And this is what Cordelia did. I, I just don't get it. Anyway, this judge, he's looking into it. Everyone is tight-lipped. But Cordelia, she hears that now uh, she was seen out shopping. So what does she do? She claims identity theft. <gasps> that person must have did it. Not me. <laughs> You've got the wrong person. <laughs> she is just trying everything. And she thinks that she's confident enough to get away with it. It's insane. The psyche of this woman is insane. Um, But yeah, nothing came from the judge's investigation. Like I said, nobody's saying anything. She claims for identity theft and it's a mess, but it it doesn't fly. Nobody believes that someone is stealing her identity. Then in 1904, Cordelia appealed for her sentence and got a retrial, but then she just got convicted all over again and was sentenced to life in prison all over again. 3rd of May 1905, Cordelia was allowed to leave prison officially for a day. She got like allowed by the court and this was to attend the funeral of her son Beverly. Now we haven't spoken about Beverly. There is not much on Beverly's life but what we do know is tragic. So Beverly was living in Modesto, California, and he operated a bucket shop, and the shop had some sort of connection with Welcome, his father's business. Uh, Beverly got married in 1903 to Zeta Ewell, and then, oh man, in February of 1905, Zeta gave birth to Catherine, a daughter. Unfortunately, she was stillborn. And then Zayda died two weeks later um, at 26 years old. I don't know if this was due to complications with the pregnancy or anything else, but yeah, unfortunately she passed away two weeks after her daughter. And then Beverly died in 1905, in in May, sorry, of 1905. I couldn't find out how he died. Um, He was known to be a really heavy drinker and it sounded like 1905 was probably one of the worst years of his life. So can only speculate what happened and I'm not going to dive into those theories today. But yeah, Cordelia was allowed to leave funeral, uh, sorry, leave the jail for the day to attend his funeral. Then April 18th, 1906 at 5.12 a.m., San Francisco was hit with a massive earthquake. You probably heard about it in your history classes. It was a 7.9 on the Richter scale earthquake and it was it it was devastating. There was incredible damage done to the jail. So Cordelia was transferred to San Quentin State Prison. (laughs) I bet you've heard of that prison. That is a hardcore, insane place. To be and just about every inmate in there could have their own episode on this podcast and a lot of them will no doubt um and this is where she stayed until 1910 when she died and her cause of death sorry <clears throat> her cause of death was softness of the brain caused by melancholy in other words she died of depression so obviously she's in prison that's that's pretty depressing Uh, But also, everyone she ever loved had died by that point as well. She outlived everyone she ever loved. So, Cordelia's father died in 1900 after being kicked by a horse. Welcome died in 1904 due to heart failure. Beverly died in 1905. And then John, her lover, he died in 1908. So she just lost everyone. Even though she's an awful person and whatnot, she 
yeah, outlived everyone she ever loved and this caused her to die from depression. Let's quickly talk about John. So after the trial, he was obviously humiliated. He couldn't get another job. He never found love again. He lost everything due to Cordelia. Um, I don't know if I feel that sorry for him because yes, he got caught up in her life and whatnot. She was not a good influence. I get that. But at the same time, he was a grown ass man who could make his own decisions and he threw away his marriage, uh, his wife, his daughter's life. Like he made that decision. He embezzled money. He was a drunk. He was a gambler. Like I said, yes, heavily influenced by Cordelia, but he made those decisions. So I don't know how sorry I feel for him, but yeah, it's his daughter that I feel the most sorry for. Uh, Mary, the daughter not and the wife. I feel sorry for the wife. Of course, she died. It's very tragic. But his daughter, I feel the most sorry for in all of this. Um, but that, my lovely listeners, is the sweet and sour tale of Cordelia Botkin, uh, the first murder by mail um it, it's an interesting case because it's tragic it's awful but her confidence was insane for someone who made so many mistakes and was not very smart about things she was confident <laughs> and I think if she focused her energy and being a good person she would have been attractive and the confidence that she had would have been justified, you know? You know when you meet someone and you think they're so pretty or they're so handsome but you talk to them for five minutes and their personality is just makes them ugly? Yeah, I feel like if Cordelia had a nice personality, it would make her more attractive, you know what I mean? But she makes me laugh, just that confidence and just how dumb she was, so... Yeah, I'm not taking anything away from Mary or Harriet being the tragic victims in this, but I just wanted to cover this case to show you that don't, <laughs> don't think you're hot shit if you don't act <laughs> that way as well. You know what I mean? Be a good person. Be nice. Just be a nice person and don't go around killing people. Okay. Okay. So get in touch with your thoughts and feelings about the case uh, that's all I'm going to leave you with. And until next time, be safe, be good, be better, and all that cheesy crap. And I will see you all next week for another episode of Coffee and Crime. <laughs>